Somebody once asks the Buddha for the very essence of his teaching. Saying something along the lines of the fact that I, you know, I, don't have, I don't want to learn a lot of complicated practices. I don't have time to listen to philosoph- great philosophical treatises. I just want the essence. Probably a Westerner. <laughs> Went all that way. What's the essence of your teaching? To which the Buddha replied, Don't cling to anything as I, me, or mine. Now, of course, with anything essential like that, anything pithy, one can, uh, uh, there's a lot of juice to be had from unpicking that. So that pithy statement, don't cling to anything. Another one of my favorite lines of the Buddha, which again is one of these kind of pithy statements that encapsulates the essence of Dharma teachings, the essence of this kind of practice, where he says, where there is clinging, there's suffering. Where there is suffering, there's clinging. And sometimes when I even, just, even saying that line, I'm struck by its kind of stark, simple obviousness. And yet, you know, that line has given me endless, endless cause for reflection over the last 20-something years. So to the extent that we're interested in the resolution of our human suffering, to that extent we're invited to pay attention to our clinging. And specifically, maybe we can just define clinging a little more, clinging and partly in the way we've been exploring today, clinging as energetic tension patterns, clinging as a narrowing of our focus, as an obsessing around, or as a pushing against, as the pursuit of or the rejection of, as the kind of exclusifying of some object of our attention. Getting uptight about we might say in contemporary language. Nothing in this world, the Buddha might have said, is worth getting uptight about. And he pointed to, I mentioned this last night, and it'll be the thread of these afternoon teachings through the days, he pointed to three particular realms of human experience where we tend to get particularly uptight which means three areas that seem to be particularly responsible for our suffering. The whole um, playing out of a spiritual practice, 
certainly in the way that we're exploring it uh, together, is the playing out of getting uptight around something, recognizing that uptightness, and dropping it. Sometimes it's that simple, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes, oh, I recognize it, and I say, okay, let's drop it. (laughs) And it doesn't drop. And then it needs some investigation, some real curiosity. How come? I recognize that I've gotten uptight around something. I recognize that you know, it would be easier to just abide with physical discomfort if I abided, abode, uh, spaciously with it, generously with it. And yet, I find myself fussing a lot with it, freaking out around it. And so, that variation on the simple version, recognizing that there's clinging and dropping it. Meditation is recognizing, and when it won't drop, how come? What am I invested in? What am I, what am I hoping for? What am I hoping for from clinging on, from insisting, from demanding, from getting uptight? It's a rather stark question for all of us. What am I hoping for? So these these three realms that we'll explore, um, classically put, but are called clinging to desire. Let's say clinging around desire. Clinging around views and opinions and clinging around a sense of existence and non-existence. If that doesn't make too much sense right now, it's fine. We'll, we'll hopefully make it make sense over the days. Another way of putting that in less classical, in more contemporary language, clinging around what I want, what I think, and who I take myself to be. And in some ways it might be shocking if we look at our moment-by-moment experience to see that that seems to cover the very, very vast majority of all our experience. We seem to spend a lot of our time either wanting something or holding a view about something or, in a way that might sound for now a bit mysterious, but we'll get there, into falling into the delusion that we either exist or don't exist. We'll put that aside for now, right? (laughs) So, easily, we might hear this kind of Buddhist injunction to not cling. And if with with the sincerity that we might bring to this kind of practice, we try busily to not cling. One shouldn't cling. And sometimes, it's a word I don't like so much, but it's a synonym that's sometimes used 
for the upadana, Pali word, attachment. We get busy, or Buddhists get busy, trying to be not attached. Sometimes, even worse, trying to be detached. So we say to ourselves, or sometimes we might even say to each other, you shouldn't be attached. I shouldn't be attached. I shouldn't cling. But that's really not a very helpful approach. Like we were saying last night, you know, there's no wrong experience. We don't see clinging. We don't understand clinging. We don't free ourselves from clinging by trying not to do it. Hopeless approach. Rather, like we were exploring this morning around the sense of letting go, when we, re- when we recognize, really recognize the, the tension, the, um, the investment, the, the fear, the enormous amount of energy that it's ex- that's expended in hanging on, when we really recognize that and understand it, it frees up. So we don't work with clinging by trying not to do it. We work with clinging by investigating it wherever it shows up. So there's no, they're not trying to defend against you know, desire happening. Or defend against having a view about something. There's a kind of harshness to that. A kind of rejection of our experience. We're working with this kind of with this uh, caring curiosity to see what's here. How's it affecting me? We investigate where we get tight. So, one of the places the Buddha suggests where we get tight is around is around desire around wanting and even if we were ju- if we were just to take the uh, that aspect of our experience just today how many moments of wanting have there been today you know, sometimes with a kind of desperate pull sometimes we look at the bell at the front and we kind of what we wish Wants it to try and kind of you know use that kind of Jedi <laughs> power to wish the bell would ring. Now that kind of hopeless, futile wanting. I'm oblivious to all your wanting me to ring the bell, right? Well, not completely oblivious, <laughs> but it's not going to work anyway. So sometimes there's, that, there's those kind of moments of a kind of anguished, desperate, useless kind of wanting. We know it's not going to work. And yet somehow we feel hopeless to do anything but, but, uh, but follow that hopeless movement of mind. There have been many moments of just of a much subtler kind of wanting. Just somehow wanting our experience to be a bit different. 
having some sense that if I, if I could just uh, kind of get it right, if I just, if just my knee wasn't sore, or if just my mind didn't wander, or if I just hadn't thought of that song and now it's kind of started playing around them. Just wanting some part of my experience to be different with the idea, the erroneous idea, that if that were the case, then everything would be okay. Then I'd really be able to meditate. So it's just a couple of examples of the way wanting might show up in this context. As well as the countless ways wanting, big and small. Some are wanting realistic sometimes and hopelessly unrealistic other times shows up in our experience. So what do we do with wanting? If we're not going to just move from one extreme to the other, First extreme of just being a slave to wanting. That's the encouragement we get growing up. Right? It may not be a conscious encouragement, but it's, the, it's you know, to the extent that our culture has been shaped by the force of human wanting, which it has to a large extent. To that extent we get the subliminal message that wanting is a great thing. And that the way to deal with wanting is by just trying to satisfy each and every and all of our wants in a, in a kind of voracious way. You know, the external manifestations of our culture are ones of voracious, out of control wanting. And you know, much endless column inches have been written about the recent riots and the fact that they main kind of social message seemed to be about trainers. <laughs> In the outward manifestation, obviously there's lot, lots else going on below that. But, you know, it's, a kind of, it's got to be partly symptomatic of the voracious wanting expression in our culture. That, that, the, that, that kind of social expression, violent social expression, you know, finds, finds its uh, outlet in... in, uh, in um, Named brand in branded footwear, and the other things, all that stuff that you've doubtless read endless articles about. So one of the the kind of threefold reflection on wanting, or a threefold way of working with wanting. Given that we recognize, hey, this is a really powerful force in our life. And it may be, to some extent, a material force, the things we want, sometimes with appropriateness, sometimes just with a kind of uh, carried-awayness. Whether that's the obviously material things, or whether it's the wanting for you know other people, wanting the wanting that goes on around relationship. We can want when we don't have a relationship, and we can want when we do have a relationship. Right? Sometimes when we do have one, we might want to not have it, 
When we don't have one, we want to have it. And when we do have one, we want to keep it, but we want the other one to change in various ways, etc. So, one of the important ways of working with, you know, with this huge force in our life is seeing it's that wanting engenders wanting, engenders wanting. And one of the fundamental delusions running through wanting is that, and we might not think this philosophically, but it's what's alive in, in the way that we cling, the way that it gets a hold of us, the way that we get tight around it, is the idea that when I get the thing, the situation, the experience, the person that I want, I'll know peace. Right? We don't say that we don't think that philosophically. If I just got this one thing, everything in my life would be okay. Of course we don't. And yet, if we look carefully, it's 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 some kind of version of that type of belief that keeps us caught in the wanting. We locate our well-being in the object of the wanting. And we believe, and that's what keeps wanting going, we believe that the fulfillment, happiness, peace, relief, lies in that object. And there we are in the if only, if only, whatever it is. Something that characterizes the movement of wanting is a certain tension, right? Wanting is the tension of not having. Wanting is the tension of feeling there's this my life, my well being, my whatever capacity for peace is lacking that thing. It's it's built into the wanting, is the sense that that this moment, this situation is, is not okay. It's uh, not enough. It's, um, it's lacking that thing. And that sense of lack has a tension to it. A tension that we can uh, meet. That we can feel into. That we can learn to actually recognize more and more uh, subtly. That we can learn to recognize more and more quickly. So that actually when the, the, the want for something arises, what starts to stand out to us more obviously than the investment in the object is the tension pattern of the wanting. And even if it doesn't stand out to us, if it's largely, like it is for most people, largely unconscious, sometimes wholly unconscious, Nevertheless, it acts on us as kind of uh, heat, burn, attention. This most obvious expression of that kind of heat and tension is in sexual desire. What do you say in English? I don't think you do. You use hot in, in in French. That's the way you describe sexual desire as being hot. 
Right. What do you say in English? Do you say hot? I've kind of lost touch. With, I'm hot for you. Yeah, I'm hot for you, you might say. Right? Horny it comes to mind as more common parlance, I think, in English. But hot, I don't know quite what the connection of horny is to the energetic complex, but we'll leave that. But hot, certainly, the, the kind of the heat of wanting. And because that heat, that tension is uncomfortable, when we get the thing, the person, the experience, the whatever it is, we, we, uh, th- that heat, that tension drops. And we experience the relief. And we think that the thing, the object, has given us the relief. Actually, it's the... It's the it's the it's the stopping of that tension. It's the softening of that that uh, that sense of lack. That's really the, what's relieving in it. And because the pattern to respond in that kind of Pavlovian way, wanting, tension, trying to get, getting, ah, oh, relief. But the investment in that tension pattern is so strong that, of course, it's very, very quickly that we just find something else to want. If the relief was in the thing, when we got the thing, that would be the end of wanting. Right? I want this, I'm hot, hot, I'm uncomfortable, I'm tense around it, I want, I want, get it? If that was it, if that had that magical power to end the agitation of wanting, I just keep it close like this. No more wanting, like a lucky charm against wanting. No such luck. So partly the way of working with wanting is is attuning to the wanting itself. And we start to learn it the truth of its cyclical nature. Wanting engenders wanting. And then we start to be interested in what we support wanting. What am I going to support? Whatever we feed, that's what will grow. Some some kinds of wanting happen in a very straightforward way. The wanting... That's you know the important stuff that we that we need to to want to uh, move towards to get just to kind of maintain our lives well, food, clothing, shelter. It doesn't there doesn't have to be any clinging there. There doesn't have to be any suffering there. There doesn't have to be any complexity there. <clears throat> I feel cold. I want to feel warmer. I put on a jumper. I feel warmer. Simple. I'm hungry. I eat. The same movement of wanting is there. The same sense of um, uh, lack arises. Right? It's a helpful thing. It's a kind of biological thing. Whether that's around temperature or, or food or whatever. And we might make the adjustment. But often, even with those simple things, 
we might find we're actually hoping for something that the object doesn't really have the power to give us. But, and with those simple things like right with food, often what we're hope, what we're hoping for, what we're wanting isn't just physical sustenance. Right? We're wanting something else. It might be emotional comfort. We're wanting somehow to make this thing, to, we're wanting for this thing to make me feel better about myself. And we see that with a lot of the, you know, the basic needs. We see that around food. Certainly around, around clothing. Now, clothing's a basic need, right? But we've elevated the use of clothing to something kind of, uh, what's the word? Pathological. Right? And most, you know, how, ma- how many clothes do we have? How many clothes do we need to maintain the basic sense of you know, human warmth, basically? And what's going on with the rest? What are we hoping for? What am I wanting? When I either go shopping, or what am I wanting when I when I dress myself and kind of I have those doubts? I put on, take on, take, put on, take off. What am I? What am I wanting from clothing? What am I wanting from food? What am I wanting? from the place I live in. It's not to suggest that there's a right or a wrong here. It's not to suggest one should only have, you know, uh, an extremely minimal wardrobe, for example. But suggesting that if we don't know what's going on in the wanting, unconscious wanting will get um, corrupted by clinging. That's why the Buddha points to wanting as one of the areas that, uh, you know, that we get into so much trouble with, that we get so uptight around. And where there's clinging, there's suffering. Sometimes, so part of of what's happening there in, in the wanting in that way is that we're wanting something that the object can't give us. In which case we're bound, bound to suffer. Sometimes we don't really know that. And we kind of, or we kind of know it, but we actually willfully ignore the fact. We kind of know that uh, the thing I'm wanting can't really make me feel better about myself. And yet we sort of persevere anyway. Some kind of blind hope. So, bringing awareness to desire really is, uh, this way of working with it is getting honest about what we're doing with wanting. 
It's not a, there's not some code of behavior here with one should want this and one shouldn't want this or one should stop wanting in this way. No. It's just to, to get interested. Get conscious. See, what if there's this an extraordinary force in my life called wanting. What am I doing with it? Is it conducing to ease? Or is it conducing to getting uptight? And sometimes the way our minds move in wanting is almost willfully to want something that we can't have. To live in the misery of not getting or not having. And that seems to mean something about me and poor me and it's like this and it's not fair and it's um, something. And we find ourselves actively letting our mind go to something that's unattainable. We go to become unattainable. We might obsess about unattainable wealth. We might obsess about an unattainable person. Where there's obsessing, there's suffering. And so we start to we start to get kind of much more careful, much more caring about how we incline our minds. As we see that wanting engenders wanting. Wanting engenders wanting. Wanting engenders getting tight around. So the invitation of this teaching is to study our wanting. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the Buddha's word for it, right? Another way of, of working with wanting is with the kind of koan. And koan's a word from the Zen tradition, which means a sort of a contemplative question that doesn't really have an answer. Wherein the contemplating of the question is what's fruitful. More than the, the finding of any particular answer. And one of the, uh, the koans that I think is very helpful and with all of this kind of material is what do I really want? What do I really want? It's a way of cutting through the layers of our wanting. When you find yourself caught in wanting the the bell to ring to end meditation, when you find yourself caught for just uh, wanting lunchtime to come, when you find yourself courting, uh, caught in, uh, in wanting to not have any thoughts in meditation. Just to reflect in this way, what do I really want? Because often we get, we get, we get seduced by the first layer. We want the bell to ring. Oh, I wish the bell would ring to end meditation. Why? All it means is walking meditation. <laughs> we think it would be so if the bell would ring and then, and then well, walking and then we go out and walk and we say oh, oh 
I wish the bell would ring. Why? So we can come back and see it. That's clearly not what we really want, right? If what you really wanted was the bell to ring, I really, I'd sit up here and just ring it for you. (laughs) What do I really want? And we might see underneath that kind of uh, obsessing about the bell, I want to get away from myself. I want to get away from what's happening. Oh, really? And then we start to get interested in, the, in that kind of one layer down of our experience. But what do I really want? Oh, I don't really want to get away from myself. Actually, I want to really be in touch with myself. But there's something that feels intolerable to me. Something in, in this physical discomfort or something in the kind of a restlessness I'm experiencing. And I notice I'm just trying to, to kind of flee from that. But what do I really want? Actually, I really want to understand what's happening. So then we start to tune in to that restlessness rather than fleeing from it. That's an example of, of a way in which that kind of reflection can drop us down a layer or two or onion like down through the layers. By not taking at face value whatever it is that our wild wanting has just latched onto. But by really being able, really being willing to ask ourselves honestly, what do I really want? And the third way of working with wanting is to, um, to really give yourself to it. To really let yourself want. There's these two beautiful words in English for, for really wanting. One is yearning. Yearning for is a kind of exquisite, almost transcendent quality. Yearning for, yearning. And the other is longing. Longing. Oh. Let yourself long. Let yourself yearn. Let yourself want. But don't get stuck on the thing that that wanting, you know, wanting just casts around. Right? And, and locks onto something. And then we think, oh yeah, it's that. It's kind of, a lot of the time it's quite arbitrary what we want. We think it's so important. And then something changes, our mood changes, or we get distracted, or uh, somebody uh, you know, speaks to us about something else, and oh, we kind of fickle wanters. Right? And we move on to something else, and then oh, I want that instead. And sometimes when you find yourself you know, kind of burning up with wanting, either in, the, in a kind of very strong way, or it might just be in a subtle way. It might just be in a kind of a mild preference way even. Let yourself want. Don't get seduced by the object. 
let the object of your attention, right, rather than being caught in the object of your wanting, let the wanting itself be the object of your awareness. Is that clear when I say it like that? Yeah. Let yourself feel what wanting is. In its this this quality it has of yearning, of longing. The kind of transcendent quality of wanting that is sometimes we we feel in great poetry or music. The kind of the 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 wanting the longing. That, that has a, a, a refinement to it, that has a delicacy to it, that has a lot of love in it. There's a good friend who I uh, used to spend time with in India who was very devoted to her teacher. And uh, we were spending some time together in North India, she'd left her teacher who was in South India for a month. And um, she had a little picture of him and uh, she would light a candle and put a flower on that shelf where the picture was in the mornings. And one morning I went to her hut and she was sitting quietly in front of the picture of her teacher. And I said, uh, Oh, you are you missing Guruji? And she said, oh, I'm missing him a lot. Really a lot. It's wonderful. <laughs> she says, oh, the more I miss him, the more I feel his presence in my heart. That's where wanting can lead us. Right? When we don't investigate, we think that to, to miss... To want seems to make the thing further away. Right? We emphasize the gap because we get caught on the object and then all oh, the wanting seems like the gap between where I am and where I want to be. Where I want to be is with that person or in that situation. And where I am is over here. And the wanting is the measure of our disconnect, the measure of our suffering. But my friend wasn't fooled by that. She was letting herself live in the wanting, in the longing, in the love. And then we might notice oh, the very wanting something brings it right here. Right? Here in the heart. Here in the sense of connection with. That's often what poetry, as I say, speaks to us of. Or if you're a Leonard Cohen fan, like me, you can find a lot of that quality of longing there. And so we might, in terms of a way of working with desire, even you know, exaggerate that slightly. You know, let, it, let it fill us. And we might be surprised to discover that instead of the wanting being this, um, th- 
this kind of problematic measure of the gap between where we are and where we want to be, what we want to have. That there's some kind of mysterious fulfilment available in the longing itself. There's a depth of intimacy available to us in really feeling wanting, feeling its play in our hearts, in our beings. Because in many ways, what it is that we really, really want is that intimacy. What we really want is a sense of completion of wholeness, of rest with ourselves, with life. So please, see for yourselves what's going on with wanting. Please make use of these tools, studying the cyclical nature of wanting, really asking yourself, what do I really want? And letting yourself live in the expression of the heart's longing. In this way, the tightness, the clinging, the obsession, the narrowing of our mind onto some rigid focus on the object of the moment can soften, can drop, can free up. In this way, we can know our our freedom of being amidst the movements of life, amidst the, the wantings that come our way. Free in sense desire. That's the invitation of our practice. And that's the possibility in our hearts. That's the fruits of these endeavors. So may it be so for each one of us here and for all of us everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.